A lot of writers come to me and they say, like, I'm really uncomfortable on social media. Do I have to be on it? And they want me to say, no, you don't have to be on it. But they do. You do have to be on it because you're competing in the attention economy. We're all competing. We're all competing for attention. And if you don't stand out, you're not going to get attention. And this is especially true for nonfiction writers. Novelists, fiction writers, if they write an incredible book and they have 240 followers, like, it'll be okay. They could still sell that book. But for nonfiction writers, we're competing with our ideas. And so how do you get your ideas out there? It's very fascinating to me that people, they have a fantasy of when their book comes out and how their book will exist in the world and people will read it and Terry Gross will want to interview them for an hour and like it'll get reviewed in the New York Times. But they don't want to share their ideas on the internet before the book comes out. And I just feel like if you don't want to share your ideas, what are you doing writing a book? Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, whose voice you just heard, is author Lee Stein. Lee is a returning guest to the show. She was the second guest ever on the show, and now she is the second returnee. The other two-time guest was Katie Herzog. Lee came on in the summer of 2020 to talk about her novel, Self Care, which spoofs corporate feminism and the cult of the girl boss. She's here today to talk about her observations about the publishing industry and what she's learned as a book coach, independent editor, and consultant for other writers. But before I say more about that, and because this is a writing-themed episode, I'm going to make a little plug for my own writing class, my first ever personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom wrapped up just a few weeks ago and was a ton of fun and a great success, I think, so much so that I am offering another one starting in January. It will run for eight weeks, eight consecutive Mondays. January 10th through February 28th from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I made this one a little earlier than the previous one to accommodate more time zones. We had someone in Ireland in the last class who was up until 2 a.m. with us. So this one will be 3 to 6 Eastern, 12 to 3 Pacific, etc. to make it easier for more people. The application deadline is Monday, December 20th, and you can learn more about it at daummasterclass.com. Space is limited to 12, but if this interests you, please do check it out. It might even be better than an MFA, at least according to my guest, Lee Stein, who has lots to say about MFA writing programs and the degree to which they prepare or fail to prepare students to actually publish books Lee is the author of five books, including a memoir, two novels, and two books of poetry. In 2016, she co-founded the feminist literary nonprofit Out of the Binders and organized a conference, BinderCon, which brought in more than 2,000 attendees. She wrote about that experience in an article out this week in LitHub, and she spoke to me about the ways she thinks writers need to wise up. And this includes her theory that MFA programs are like multi-level marketing schemes. I should also say that a video version of this conversation is up on the podcast YouTube channel, The Unspeakable Channel. Lee, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. You were the second guest ever on the podcast when it started, and now you are the second returning guest. Oh, well, thank so you for having me back. It's, it all, it very, it's very, um, feels very much 
in line and symmetrical. So you, the last time you were here, you were talking about your brilliant novel, Self-Care. And now you're talking about how creative writing just sucks and uh, we, sh- we shouldn't bother. <laughs> so something like that? Yeah, let's quit. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm ready to quit anytime. What do you think this podcast is? I mean, you know. Um, now, you've written a really interesting piece in LitHub about the world of MFAs uh, and really seen through the lens of your experience working for BinderCon. Why don't you just start by telling us what your piece is about and what inspired it? And we'll go from there. Sure. So um, my experience running BinderCon, which I think I talked a little bit about the first time I came on your show, this was a feminist writing conference that I started in 2014 and burning out on this feminist writing conference and the Facebook group that went along with it is partly what inspired me to write self-care. So it all comes full circle here. But when self-care was coming out last summer, I actually tried to go on the Death, Sex and Money podcast and I pitched them the idea of I could have gotten a scholarship to my own conference. That's how little money I made running the conference. <laughs> I made like $12,000 a year to be executive director of a 501c3 nonprofit. So death, sex, and money didn't pick it up, but I had this pitch like waiting in my inbox. And then I, a few weeks ago, I had this like viral tweet thread in the wake of Kidneygate of Bad Art Friend. I don't think you've yet done an episode on Bad Art Friend, which was the Robert Kolker piece about this feud between these two women writers, one of whom, Don Dorland, spoke at my conference, BinderCon. So I had this tweet thread about how, um, how it really burned me to see that Grub Street, which is a Boston creative writing program, it's not an MFA program, it's kind of like an extracurricular creative writing program, that they were bringing in $8 million a year. And that really hurt me because I worked so hard on my conference and I really wanted it to be a place where we were teaching people how to have careers and to make a living as writers. And we made so little money doing it. So part of me is just a little bit bitter. Um, but because of this viral tweet thread about this, LitHub asked if I would write an essay about this, which I did. So it's about going broke and burning out, trying to lead a nonprofit writing organization in this larger creative writing landscape that you and I are going to talk about today, where there's so much money to be made in teaching aspiring writers, but so few of those writers will ever publish books and make any money in return. Right. And I guess I need to be careful because, of course, I teach writing to aspiring writers. Many of my students do get published, though, I, I have to say, because there are, a lot of them are working on opinion pieces and essays, and that's a little bit of a different equation. But, okay, well, at the risk of having this sound like totally inside baseball for, for some listeners right out of the gate, maybe we can circle back to, to Kidney Gate. I didn't realize it was being called Kidney Gate. It's that, <laughs> it's gotten that deep into the weeds. Also, it's being called Kidney Person, which I think is also hilarious because there was a whole drama around Cat Person. So you can also call it Kidney Person. Right, right. So Cat Person was another kind of tempest in a literary world teapot from a few years ago. Okay. Um, well, so tell us, tell us what you really think is the problem with this scheme. Like, what are the real world consequences of people thinking that they can learn to write and people thinking that writing can be taught and can it be taught? Let's just start right there. Sure. I think writing can be taught. I think like writing is like a skill or a craft that you can improve upon. But 
the thing that really disturbs me is I feel like in my mind, there's like an image of this gaping canyon between the way writing is talked about in academia and the way writing is talked about in book publishing land. And when I talk about this with some people, some people will say, well, not everyone goes to an MFA program, like intending to become a professional writer or publish a book. And I'm sure there are some people that don't, but most everyone I've ever met has wanted to write a book. I mean, strangers, my optometrist tells me she wants to write a book. Every stranger I meet who finds out that I'm a writer doesn't want to know more about my books. They want to tell me about the book that they want to someday write. So there's so many people with a dream of publishing a book and there's so little education in these writing programs about the book publishing industry. And I have more conversations with people in the industry, like agents, who will tell me they avoid creative writing programs. They don't go there seeking clients to represent with books. They avoid them because they say those people don't know how to write. Oh my gosh. And I think what they mean, what they mean is that they don't know how to write for an audience other than other writers. Yes. Yeah. Well, so I went to an MFA program. I went to Columbia in the 1990s and I I did want to publish. I mean, I went there for reasons that were certainly not rational. I just, I felt that my, my life was kind of, this is insane. I, my life was not aesthetically what I wanted it to be because <laughs> I was working at Condé Nast as an editorial assistant. And I really fancied myself some kind of bohemian, like artistic, intellectual, creative person, you know, like as I've written about living in a shabby upper, upper, upper West side apartment and having frayed Persian rugs. And that was not the world that I found myself in working at, at fashion magazines. And so I thought that going to an MFA program would like deliver me into this kind of world and it would look a certain way. And I didn't apply anywhere but Columbia. Uh, or I think I might have applied to NYU as well, but I had no interest in like going someplace that would maybe give me a scholarship or where I would actually learn to write better. I thought I, I already thought I was a good writer. Honestly, I just wanted to be in a certain kind of world. And I took out an enormous amount of loans to That's what I was going to ask happen. you. How did you pay for it? Because Columbia is loans. one of the more expensive ones. Oh, completely. And I've written about this before. This is no secret. I took out loans and I remember going and meeting with the, I don't know, like the the administrators, like somebody in the program who was like kind of in charge of mentoring the, the, the would be the people who had applied and people who were deciding whether or not they should go after they were admitted. And I was asking her about this. I'm sort of lamenting this. And she was like, well, you know, it's just, it's, it's just student loans. It's not the same thing. It's not, it's not real debt. It's student loan debt. So you shouldn't worry. And I kind of just went along with that at that time. I was 24, you know? Right, right, right. You were young. It was like, it was like monopoly money. Yeah. And like, I, oh, you have a long time. You're young. You have forever to pay it off. But it's interesting for me to hear you talk about it as like a lifestyle choice. It was like, yeah, that's you, ridiculous. No, you, know, I, yeah. you wanted to be in a certain world. I think it's that for a lot of people. Um, cause it's yeah. interesting to me cause writing, unlike something like filmmaking, like I can't go out and make a film without some equipment and without like a team of people. But writing, it's like a very low overhead, like artistic pursuit or oil painting. I'd have to go out and buy oil paints. Oh, yeah. It's the cheap. I think writing is the cheapest thing you can do. And the other thing is like everybody can write. Like if you are, unless you are illiterate and you can't like spell, you know, words and write them down, 
anybody can write a sentence and anybody can write a paragraph. So it's very hard to distinguish. It's not like music where you have to actually learn a skill and learn an entire vocabulary and an entire kind of system of creation. Everybody writes stuff down all the time. Right. And a lot of people that come to me, because I work with writers now like you do, they're very self-conscious about their writing and they want to be reassured that they're not terrible writers. And most people I work with, they're, they're really not terrible writers, but it's because like they all studied writing in school and, and the game is not to be the most exceptional writer. It's not the greatest writers that get published. There are so many other things that go into this equation. And really it's more important that you have original ideas than that you're the best writer of all. Right. Yes. And actually, that's why my class is very much a conversation class and an idea class. Like we do workshop stuff, but I think it's so important to talk about your idea, talk about your life experience and how you might funnel that into an idea that then becomes a book. Like I'm your editor. Pitch me your story. I'm not your workshop teacher. I'm your editor. And let's figure out how to take this thing that you're interested in and turn it into something. So anyway, this is not a, we don't need to talk about what my class is. But so again, like why, what, what are the stakes for you? What got you so, because you, the piece that you have in, in Lit Hub came out of a, a tweet storm that you did on this uh, subject when the, when the Grub Street uh, and Kidney Gate and all that were in the mix of discourse. Um, so again, why, why are you so exercised over this? <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting too, like you and I are coming at writing from two different paths. Like I didn't learn how to pitch stories. Like I'm, in, I'm so embarrassed thinking about my early pitching experiences because I didn't know how to pitch. And so I would like, like I got discovered by an editor at Allure who asked me to write a beauty essay. So when in like 2010 or 11, when my first novel was coming out, she just like picked it up out of the slush pile, thought I was funny, said, do you have an essay idea? I run this column every month about beauty. You have to write about beauty. And my husband said, um, why don't you write about how your ears stick out? And I thought, oh, that's funny. So I said, do you want me to write an essay about how my ears stick out? She was like, that's hilarious. Then she said, we don't pay very much. It's 1,600 words and we'll pay you $6,000. You should have said, I don't get out of bed for for uh, less than $6,300. Yeah. It's the most I've ever been paid. I only, for the book, for my book, my advance was $2,000. For your first book, not yes. your most recent. For book. my first yeah. book. And then they said they'll pay me $6,000 to write 1,600 words about how my ears stick out. This was the heyday of women's magazines and it was all downhill. Dilla, hill what year that. was this again? It was, would have been 2011 or 12. And what was it like to write about that subject? Because part of the thing with Allure, that's so funny that that was your first gig because that was that's the magazine where I worked with that I wanted to escape and like be at Columbia with frayed rugs. But um, they no, they had this section called Reflections. I'm sure it was a Reflections piece. So that was a personal essay about some aspect of appearance. And act- it was tremendous because they had people, they had, because it paid so well, we had amazing writers. We had Mary Gates Gill, David Mamet wrote a piece, like Francine Prose, just you name it, like these huge names, uh, Amy Hempel. And uh, they would write just whatever about frizzy hair or whatever it was um, and get paid all this money. But I think there was also a feeling that somehow the editor, there was a sense 
from the editors of the magazine that they were getting away with something by getting these famous people to be so vulnerable and write something about about their appearance because appearance was everything. So to even like say out loud that your ears stick out like to them was so risk taking and and brave. So what was that like? Did it feel weird, or you're just like no? The, like, no, like I have no problem talking about how my ears stick out. Um, right. I just they just thought, thought it was so funny. Like I said, you know, like when I walk down the sidewalk, I can see the shadows of my ears on the pavement. They just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> this is before Barack Obama. Oh no, wait, wait. Yes, this is around the Obama. This was yeah. I don't think time. I made a reference yeah. to Obama. But. Oh yeah, he made he made sticking out ears yeah. sexy. He- <laughs> But you're right. Like this is how literary writers used to make a living is like a combination of publishing books and then writing for $3 a word in shiny magazines. And then that dried up. But my main point was just that like, I came from, I came from like writing poetry on the internet. So I came from poetry. I didn't come from a nonfiction or a journalism background. I didn't know how to pitch. Um, I just came up through the internet and through publishing online and making friends online because I didn't have all these institutional connections. And what I see around me is people assuming that they have to get an MFA, that that's like a step toward becoming a professional author. And I wish people knew there were other ways to do that. And I wish people knew that it doesn't guarantee anything, that even if you get the MFA, it doesn't mean you'll get an agent or that you'll get a book deal. And I just think writing is such a solitary pursuit. I mean, even if you do the MFA, then you have to spend the next, you know, 30 years of your life writing by yourself. And if you aren't comfortable being alone, just thinking thoughts and putting them down on paper, like maybe this isn't the right path for you. Yeah. It's funny because I think a lot of writers, they want a community. They want a writing community, which is understandable and can be fruitful, but it's actually at the end of the day, you need to get away from your community and be your own community and sit there with your butt in the chair and put the words down. Yeah. And one of the, one of the best like writing classes I ever taught took was an op-ed project workshop where you had to, you had to workshop an idea for an op-ed. You had to come in with an idea and it was very scary. It's like not the, I hated writing argumentative essays in school. I hate making an argument. This has not come naturally to me. I'd rather write a poem about my feelings, but that kind of training was like so useful for me. And I just think about all these like writers that are writing memoirs and MFA programs. And I've taught memoir writing. I've written a memoir. But I think this huge shift happened with the internet where in the 90s, it was like the heyday for memoir with Mary Carr and Tobias Wolf. There were these best-selling memoirs just about someone's life. And now all day long on the internet, we can read confessional content. And so why would you buy someone's book where you could get their whole story in like an article for Slate? Like you know the story or you know their Instagram caption. And so what I'm seeing trending now is like memoir plus, that it's part memoir part research, part memoir, part reporting, and those books do really well. So then I think, well, why aren't these MFA programs teaching reporting or teaching research so that they could sell these books? But of course they're not. So what do you tell people when they come to you? So I know you you work as an editor. Like what what is your role in this at this at this moment? What do you bring to the table? So after I resigned from BinderCon, I thought I was broke. I was in like $8,000 of credit card debt. And I thought like, what, what do people come to me for advice about? And even when I was running BinderCon, people would come to me for advice about book publishing. By this point, I've now published five books in three different genres with big publishers and small publishers. So I have a range of experience in publishing. 
And people would always come to me for book publishing advice. It would be, you know, like my book isn't selling. Why isn't it selling? I can't get an agent. Why can't I get an agent? And when I was running BinderCon, I would get frustrated by these emails because I would say, I'm literally devoting my life to making a conference that you can come to and learn all about this stuff. And instead you're emailing me. But then I was like, oh, I could charge them money. <laughs> so I started working as a book coach. So now I charge people money as like a consultant. So I, I'm like kind of an independent editor, but really I'm focused on helping people get their books published. And I'm really picky about who I work with because I, at the beginning, when I first started out, I did like a lot of, you know, um, you know, people who are retired and writing their family stories as memoirs, and I would help edit those. But now I'm really focused on books that I can see a path to publication. And I really help writers pitch their books. Like you say, pitch, pitch your idea if you're their editor. You know, I help people figure out what the category is of the book they're writing. Who's the audience for this book? Like who would publish this book? And so how do we target the pitch for them? I help people write book proposals. Because that's also very mysterious. Unless you've seen a book proposal, and where would you see one of those? Unless you have a friend that has a successful book proposal, you can Google it. But to see a book proposal that's actually sold and to see what goes into that um, is very mysterious. So I help well, and they're writers all with different. that. They're all different too, because you can see, you know, some of them are 80 pages, and occasionally you'll hear about one that's like four pages. Like, oh, this person wrote a two-page proposal and got a seven-figure deal. I mean, those horrible anecdotes do fly around, and occasionally they're true. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because so, it depends on so many things. It depends on you know who the person is, what their platform is. But a book needs to have a concept. You know, like memoirists often come to me and they're, they start telling me about what happened to them. And then I say, but what's the book? And they say, but just wait, I haven't finished the story yet, right? But it's like, but what is the book? It has to exist as this product. So I think MFA programs are a lot about craft and the art. And they some some say, you know, I don't want to taint my students um, with this idea of the marketplace while they're still nurturing their budding talent. But for me, I'm like, I want to know what the marketplace is. I don't want to spend five years of my life on something that would never have a shot of being published. I don't want to spend that my time that way. But I'm very outcome oriented and some people are process oriented and they love the process so much that that's where they're happy. Some people do. Yeah, I actually find that nice often. I have people come in and say, "Oh, you know, I just I just want to write. I just love to write and I want an I want an opportunity to write and I want, you know, a place to come and have people read what I wrote and Sometimes I'm envious of that because I'm completely, I'm outcome and income oriented. You know what I mean? So you can't have one without the other. So, but Lee, tell us about your background because needless to say, you did not go to an MFA program. You are probably, you probably have a pretty unique singular story um, in the, in the world of publishing and writers. Yes. I have a very unusual um, path. Um, and I think that's part of what makes me a little skeptical as an outsider of the, of the industry and the machine. So I dropped out of high school when I was 17 years old. I was extremely depressed and I just, I found high school to be very arbitrary and I didn't see a reason to stay there. So this really freaked out my parents. My mom was supportive. My dad was very not supportive of this decision. At the time, I wanted to be an actress. And so I thought I don't need it anyway. And I moved to Wait, how are you allowed? Like, is it legal to leave high school? I don't understand. Like, I 
you don't seem like a dropout. I mean, you really, you have none of the trappings of this. So, well, but I'm successful now. So it's a cute story. Now. I know, but how did this go? But like, you just go to your parents and you say, that's it. I'm, I'm dropping out and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, before that, before I finally dropped out, I had read a book about unschooling. So not homeschooling, but unschooling, yeah. which is like, so I read this book and I convinced my parents to let me unschool. So there was a, brief time sophomore freshman year where I only went to school part-time and I was supposed to be unschooling the rest of the time. I went to school part-time because I wanted to be in the plays. And if I wanted to be in the plays, they required me to show up and go to school. And then by the time I was 17, I was like, I can't even do this anymore. I don't care if I can't be in the plays. I got to get out of here. But I guess, yeah, it's legal. I mean, I guess my parents must have, you're asking, did they have to approve my decision. Well, yeah, like doesn't doesn't child protective services come after parents if they don't if their kids aren't going to school? I don't know. I mean, they, but I guess they must have approved it. I think my mom knew I had always kind of marched to the beat of my own drum. My dad was very freaked out that I would do this this and ruin my life, but I did it. And then I started going to community college, and I really liked community college because I wasn't being micromanaged, and I could just take classes and things I was interested in. And I thrived there. So that was really positive for me. Wait, can you go to community college without graduating from high school? I guess so. I guess they never ask. I mean, I was wondering that, yeah, like, I guess you can't just show up at Yale and like, oh, they didn't ask. Well, so this know. is what happened. So I moved to New York City at on my 19th birthday. I moved to New York City. I got into acting conservatory. I show up at registration and they say, um, we didn't receive your high school diploma. And I said, I don't have one. And they said, like, we're a college, like, you can't come here. And I was like, oh, I didn't know. Nobody told me. And so I made some kind of deal with them that I, if I studied for my GED and took my GED while I was in acting school, they would let me go. So I have a GED from the state of New York. And when I took the GED, I was so angry because I studied for it for months. I studied from a textbook. And I took the GED in New York and I thought I could have passed this in sixth grade. Like it just seemed like all of schooling was a waste of time and everything. It just, it just feels like everyone's lying to you all the time. That's how I felt. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. So this makes sense that then this is like a, a this is very much a theme in your psyche. <laughs> you, you're, you're anti-school, including MFA. So I'm anti-school. Okay. So um, what happened next? So that year I was in acting school. I had a live journal. So I was, I had, which was a kind of a blog. And I was posting poetry and short stories and I was building a following on live journal. And that year, my first short story was published in a literary journal. And I thought, this is what I want to do. Like that was validating to me. And I was like, in acting school, I was the one that read all the plays. So my scene partner would be like, did you read the whole play? And I'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, okay, what happens? Because they would just read their scene. So I got this feedback that like I was the nerd in the class and I was like, maybe I should just be a writer. So I just went to one year of acting school and then decided to become a writer. And then a series of events happened and I ended up getting hired by Francoise Mouly, who's the cover editor of The New Yorker. I went to go work at The New Yorker and HR said, you know, where did you go to school? And I said, well, I don't have a bachelor's degree. And they were like very disturbed by this, but Francoise herself didn't have a bachelor's degree. And I guess they made some kind of exception for me to get hired as an assistant. Okay. But wait a second. You got a job at the New Yorker. Somebody might say, well, going to an MFA program, especially a place like Columbia is, uh, it will help a person get a job at a place like the New Yorker. I mean, so you, you were just kind of kicking around town and you, 
landed. How I got a job at the New Yorker was through my friend, Julia, who I met on live journal. So it was through an internet friend. Julia went to Barnard. So she had an unpaid internship at the New Yorker. And Francoise said to Julia, Julia, you're so amazing. I hate to lose you. Can you clone yourself? And she said, talk to my friend Lee. And that's how I got the job. Okay. And what year was this? That was in 2008. Okay. This is so interesting because, right, I all of this happened for me in the 90s where there was no internet. So none of this would have been possible. This would have, this transaction would have had to take place at a cocktail party or something like that in IRL. So, all right. So, okay. So you got this job at the New Yorker. So I credit the internet with so much. Like I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for the internet. Like it's, I don't have a career because I have some kind of like, because of like where I come from or who my parents are. It's just because I had like an internet connection. So I worked at the New Yorker for a year. And I remember that there were the other people my age were like the assistant, the other assistants and the interns in the fiction department who were all Columbia MFA students. And at the time, these were unpaid internships. Condé Nast has since changed. But I remember thinking like, how do you afford to do this? Like, how are, can you afford to be here? Because I was making... $28,000 a year. I tried to negotiate for more and they said, they said, we start at 25 and you're at the top. So I remember my take home pay was $800 every other week. And I had two other jobs on the side to support myself in order to work at the prestigious, prestigious New Yorker. And I, it was like a library in there. No one talked to each other. It was so hard to make friends. I just felt like, like talk about imposter syndrome. Like it really was imposter syndrome. Like, what am I doing here? Except I was good at being an assistant, but. Yeah. So the, so the Columbia students were working there for free. Did you talk to them? Did you ask them how they managed it? No, cause I didn't talk to, like, I it just, it was like, yeah, I don't know how they managed it. I just made assumptions that they were being supported by their parents, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you did that for a while and then what was your next move? And, um, I'd, I'd written a novel. So because of the internet, again, an agent found me through the internet because she'd read my stuff and she asked to represent my novel. Um, I had a book of poems. So my first two books, a novel and a book of poems were published before I finally finished my undergrad. I finally finished undergrad, like when I was 26 or 27 at Brooklyn college, which I really liked. It's like a commuter school, a lot of immigrant students, hardworking, I had briefly dabbled at the new school, but it was like seminar style. It was like smaller classes and seminar style. And I got really frustrated with like listening to the other students share their opinions. <laughs> <laughs> you are the opposite of uh, what most people... So you would rather sit in a lecture hall. Yeah, I really like sitting... Like, just tell me what I need to know. Just tell me. Like, you're the expert. I want to hear from the professor. Like, I will take notes. Just tell me. Wow. But Brooklyn College does have a very good MFA program, or maybe it's an MMA program, but it does have a good graduate creative writing program, we should say. Um, okay. So, so you avoided seminars as much as possible. You graduate. Okay. Next, so next for, stop. So for me, I think like, like education and writing, they're, I think they're just so separate to me. It's like even an English class in high school, I hated all the assigned reading. I just wanted to read Sylvia Plath. Like I just want to be left alone. I just, I always wanted to read what I wanted to read. So I never thought about getting an education in writing because writing was always something that was just like my passion and my escape and what I enjoyed doing all alone, all by myself. Yeah. Okay. So at any, when was the moment where you started intersecting with the world of teaching writing? 
I mean, you publish a book. So once you publish a book, well, why don't you tell us just really quickly what the book was and what the sort of outcome did you immediately become famous as one does uh, immediately? No, I didn't become famous, book? but I, I didn't realize at the time, I didn't realize at the time that being a debut is a certain kind of special experience that, that your yes, first book you, launches you. You cannot have it again. You cannot have it again. So I just thought I was getting all this attention because I was such a genius, but not, but I didn't realize it was because I was a debut. So my debut was in 2012 it's a coming of age novel about a young woman that moves back in with her parents after college. Um, what was so funny, I have to share this is, so my publisher decided to do a whole campaign of outreach to colleges about the book. Now at the time I had not graduated from college when this book came out <laughs> and the best review was in this and they hated it because it was, it was all about how you move back home because there's nothing to do. And like, what is your life? There's nothing. It's like a very yeah. bleak. Well, it's like their nightmare, right? It's they their don't, nightmare. So they didn't nightmare. respond to it. So, and in the book, the the narrator went to Northwestern. That was fictional because I've never been to Northwestern. And so, one of the reviews of the galley, meaning the early early copy of the book, said, "I can't believe a graduate of Northwestern would have so many typos in her book." <laughs> It was just hilarious to me. This was on not on Goodreads. No, this was in, this was printed in her college paper, a negative wow. review. Okay. okay, all right, okay. Well, so that's how it goes. So this was 2012. Magazines were still a thing. There was a full page ad in O Magazine. There was a half page ad in not ad review. There was a full page review in O Magazine. There was a half page review in L Magazine. There was a full page interview with me in Time Out Chicago. And that was like the peak, man. That was like, <laughs> that was it. Cause it was being a debut and I was a 20 something author, which also means something in the economy of book publishing. I was 27. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, did your, your life did not change though. So what were you still doing for money? Like what, what was your life like at that point? What was I doing for money at that time? Um, so after I left the New Yorker, I never worked a full-time job again. I, I've, I've since avoided full-time work. Um, in order to write. And, um, the other thing that's important to the story is I don't have children. So it's not an, it's not a coincidence that I've written five books and that I don't have children. It's, they're related. I think that cannot be emphasized enough. I think people forget to mention that and then they avoid mentioning it. I, the only way my life works at all is because I don't have dependents. So. So I, I spent a lot of time teaching kids. So I've taught poetry in the New York City public schools. I taught musical theater on the weekends to kids in Brooklyn. I worked like every Saturday for years teaching musical theater. I taught creative movement to three-year-olds at a preschool. And then at some point, I did start teaching writing to adults. And I also wrote my third book, which was a memoir. And I started teaching these memoir writing workshops. And the memoir writing workshops, I think I'm good at teaching them. But many times I would feel like it was turning into group therapy that I was not qualified to lead um, because people do sign up for these workshops to process traumatic things that have happened to them. Um, but again, I found myself teaching these classes and wanting to wear my book publishing hat and like wanting to talk about like, well, what is the book and, and what is the structure and how does the book open? And, you know, what's the arc or what's the journey? I kept wanting to add shape and structure to the to the writing um, I, I'm not the teacher to go to if you just want like a therapeutic writing experience. Cause I don't, I'm not an art therapist. You know, I'm sure that these people exist. This is real. But, but now today, and I don't teach these workshops as much anymore. There's a huge boom in writing your trauma writing workshops. <laughs> 
Do you think I should teach that? You should. You think I'd if be you good really want to. No, because I don't, I don't recognize trauma. You know, the funny thing is that I, I teach nonfiction writing workshops and I do have people come in with stories that are, that are difficult to tell. But I find that, um, by kind of, not deflecting that stuff, but by just taking it and channeling it into a very pragmatic conversation about what is this book, that's a relief to them. I find that that actually helps them process the trauma. Like if we sit there and dwell on it, you're not really going to move past it. At least even if it, even if it doesn't, I'm not the one who's going to help them move past their trauma, but I think having the opportunity to kind of put it into a compartment that you can then do something with and turn it into a piece of art or turn it into something that you have ownership of and agency over is actually therapeutic. Like I, I think that people come to me because they know I'm not going to be the therapist, but I'm going to take this thing and help them do something else with it. But yeah, that's, but you know, it's a self-selective audience. But that's people really well said. Therapy. <laughs> that's really well yeah. said. And like, I knowing what I know of you, like, it's true. Like if I came to you and I wanted to write about something that was really emotional, I would ex- know what to expect from you as an editor or as a reader. But in my, in my experience, like people, my whole life, people have come up to me and just told me stories. Like I just have this listening face that I have this sympathetic <laughs> face. My mom is a psychologist. My sister is a social worker. It's like genetic. Oh. Like people come to me with sad stories and I listen sympathetically. This has been my whole life. Hmm. Okay. Well, you should, you can move past that. Uh, so, so. What, again, so, you know, you have this, maybe this is the time to get to this. You have this really interesting comparison. You have compared MFA programs to multi-level marketing schemes. This is what I sent an email to Megan. It was just like subject line, like are MFAs, MLMs, question mark? Let's discuss. It's so interesting to think about. And I think about MLMs a lot. A couple months ago, there was this, this viral documentary called Lula Rich, which is about this legging company, leggings company, Lula Row. And all these people were DMing me and saying, have you seen this yet? Have you seen this yet? It's just like self care. I've never even heard of this legging company, but I had heard of the legging company and it's like a real, to me, it's like a real marker of class and where you come from. Cause if you're from the Midwest, like you've definitely heard of Lula Row, um, or from certain pockets in the United States. I haven't heard of it. Is that also we should just say for listeners, just you are self care had to do with the girl boss phenomenon and you've written about this phenomenon. So this is a milieu that you're associated yeah, with. It's and like that's why girl boss, are, it's like it's like yes. empowering women, it's like this kind of like empty rah rah feminism, um, like go girl spirit. So in this in these MLMs, in this leggings company, you know, you were selling leggings, but really you were making money by building your downlines, by recruiting other women to sell leggings under you, and you would get a percentage of their sales. And so the people who got in early at the top of the pyramid, if you're thinking pyramid scheme, you're on the right track. The people who got in early at the top of the pyramid became multimillionaires, but most people, 99% of people who engage in any kind of MLM lose money in this venture. So, and there's a, in, in my novel self-care, the character of Marin, who's a girl boss, who's trying to build this company and trying to chase the dream and telling herself, if I can just get to the next stage and the company's acquired, then I'll be a millionaire. In the novel, her mom was an Amway and chased a similar dream. My mom was an Amway. So I watched my mom chase this dream and listen to these motivational speeches and go to these conferences that she took me to. 
chasing this dream that never materialized. And we, we lost our house like as a, as a kid. So it was very dramatic, like turning point in my life. And I remember my dad sitting me down and saying, your mom is in a cult and she left and now we're all fine. Everybody's fine. But you just get so absorbed and obsessed. And so the setbacks, they just have a way of turning the setbacks into like fuel to keep going, right? Like don't give up because those people over there didn't give up and they're now they're millionaires. Okay. So, so talk to us about how you think MFA programs are MLMs. So there are over 200 MFA programs right now. So tens of thousands of writers go through these programs every year. There's more and more low residency programs, which Gene Hanf Correlates on your show, like hilariously satirizes in the plot where you don't even have to be a full-time student there. You can just kind of basically do a correspondence course. Um, so it's, there are really selective programs and there are programs that are fully funded, which means you don't have to pay. But there are also tons of programs that are easy to get into that will gladly accept you as a customer. And they aren't in the business of producing books. They're in the business of producing writers. And getting an MFA qualifies you to teach writing to other writers. And so that's where I really see the pyramid in my mind, where it's like writers all the way down and readers of books never enter into the equation. It's just writers teaching other writers how to write for other writers. And you can spend a lot of money doing this. Do you know how many MFA programs there are right now, including the low residency programs? There's 200. 200 total. Yeah. Okay. And so. And, and AWP, which is the largest writing conference in the country, it's been, rem- it's been um, virtual because of COVID, but like a couple of years ago, 14,000 people went to the annual convention. And I would always, this was the big writing conference that I would go to, even though I'm kind of an outsider and I don't have an MFA or work in an MFA program. But you have, you know, a, just imagine a huge convention, a huge floor space, and it's table after table after table of MFA programs that are all trying to recruit students that are promoting their program, that are promoting alumni. Um, and then there's all kinds of panel discussions about like really arcane writing craft <laughs> no, stuff, yeah. really inside yeah. baseball stuff. But there aren't panels on like, you know, how to sell a book proposal. No, that would be too crass. I don't know if that would get past the the committee because you have to submit your panel topic and all of that in order to get your panel. Yeah. And then you have these like big heavy hitter keynotes, you know, like Louise Erdrich or Colson Whitehead or someone, you know, who's like a superstar. And it seems like, well, if I just go to the right program or write the best, like I could become a superstar too. It's just, and to get, there's way, way, way too many people that graduate from these programs and are competing for a select handful of good creative writing teaching jobs. And to get those and to get a tenure track job, you have to have a book publication with a major big five publisher, but your program didn't teach you how to do that. So you have to be a really exceptional person to figure out how to write a book that sells commercially and then use your MFA to also get one of these, you know, choice jobs. It's funny that you mention you mentioned Louise Erdrich Colton Whitehead, because I think a lot of people think that going to these programs and studying with some superstar um, and I'm not singling them out for any reason. I mean, thinking any number of people, there are tons of these people at Columbia. There are tons of them at, you know, MFA programs in big cities. You think that if you're going to study with a famous author, that that famous off- author will mentor you and sort of shepherd you into a big book publication. I mean, 
does that happen a lot in your experience? Um, it might happen more than I realize. I know like another, a writer that just went through an MFA, like her mentor, you know, said that she could query her agent, right? So that right. opens a door saying, you can use my name to query this agent. That does open a door. Um, that agent could still say no. Because I feel like, so when I was at Columbia, we had a lot of superstars coming through. They weren't necessarily teaching workshops. Often they did, but they would come and teach like a master class. They would come and teach for a few weeks. And it would be New Yorker editors. It would be really famous people. I mean, I remember the day I was uh, somehow, I was in a workshop and Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn came to visit the workshop, okay? Because they were friends with the instructor. I can't remember who the professor was. I swear to God, I can't remember. But I remember being so beside myself because my piece was not up for workshop that day. And somebody's piece was, and somebody was going to get their piece workshopped in front of Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn. And I was convinced that if whoever's piece that was would be discovered. And if it had been me, it would have been such a slam dunk because I was good and it was just a matter of getting the right eyes on it. And I just was beside myself. And clearly it just doesn't matter who they were, you know, they probably fell asleep during the class. Who knows? But, but yeah, there was a yeah, lot that's of that. One of the myths, right. That's one of the myths that like, you're just going to be plucked. Yeah. You're going to be chosen. Right. Although I did get, because of Columbia, it did open a lot of doors, including I got a rent-stabilized apartment uh, through connection with uh, one of my professors. That's so extremely valuable. It is. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I did. I I don't regret going to Columbia. I I actually loved it. I got I w got in an incredible amount of debt, like eighty thousand dollars. That was not all from Columbia, but about sixty thousand of it was, and um. I, you know, I've written about this. This is no, no mystery, but I still it's had a really good time. That's right. Yeah. It became the, you know, it was the subject of my essay, my misspent youth that was in the New Yorker and then became the title piece of my, my first book. But I, I actually loved it and it did exactly what I wanted it to do. It delivered me from this kind of like, you know, glossy, shallow Hamptons timeshare world of Condé Nast um, into something that felt more right for me. But I, I also had the feeling that I was buying a life for myself rather than making one. So, and I think that might be a line from my misspent youth. I know I wrote it at one point. I can't remember if it was edited out. Probably should have been. Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess, I mean, the question is, what's the damage, right? So in, in journalism and reporting, if you're, you know, talking about some kind of syndrome that seems, uh, that seems harmful, you ask yourself, what's the damage really? So what do you think it is? I mean, the reason I get fired up and I said, I wanted to come out and talk to you about it is that I just see so many writers who are disappointed when they get a reality check about how the book publishing industry works. So I feel like I feel fired up to, to talk more candidly about how the industry works, it is very, it is very secretive. I mean, there's so many conversations that I'll never be on the, on the, a fly on the wall for in, in how, in how publishers decide whether to make an offer on a book because it's not up to the editor. The book editor doesn't make the ultimate decision about whether they want to buy a book. They have to get buy-in from all these other people. So I just feel like I want writers to know 
how the industry that they want to work in works. Because if your dream is to publish a book, and it might not be, but if your dream is to publish a book, um, you should know about the industry that you want to earn money from. And if you don't want to earn money, then fine. But that's, that's what I, that's what really burns me up is just the, the ignorance about, and, and just the, the like, um, the unwillingness to even look at it like an industry that that's somehow tainted, right? Because that's spoiling the art to even think about a product on a bookshelf with your name on the spine. Well, and let's talk about how the business has changed because you say that everything that you are is from the internet. And I, you know, I'm older, enough older than you to say everything that I am was built before the internet. And I feel like the internet came along and helped in some ways and really hurt me in other ways. And, you know, you know this, I've been talking a lot lately about how people of my generation, Gen X, are in this really kind of tough spot because we we know we have to change with the times, but we're not sort of wired that way. Like doing social media doesn't come naturally. The idea of branding yourself, that's anathema to people of my generation. That was the worst thing you can do. We were all about like, don't label me, man. Like, you know, no brands, no labels. And that's the entire name of the game now. So how do you feel about the publishing business overall? Like, does it make you depressed? Is Is any part of it... Um, hopeful or inspiring or interesting to you? I think the internet is hugely important. And um, a lot of writers come to me and they say like, I'm really uncomfortable on social media. Do I have to be on it? And they want me to say, no, you don't have to be on it, but they do. You do have to be on it because you're competing in the attention economy. We're all competing. We're all competing for attention. And if you don't stand out, you're not going to get attention. And this is especially true for nonfiction writers, novelists, fiction writers. If they write an incredible book and they have 240 followers, like it'll be okay. They could still sell that book. But for nonfiction writers, we're competing with our ideas. And so how do you get your ideas out there? It's very fascinating to me that people, they have a fantasy of when their book comes out and how their book will exist in the world and people will read it. And Terry Gross will want to interview them for an hour and like, it'll get reviewed in the New York times but they don't want to share their ideas on the internet before the book comes out. And I just feel like if you don't want to share your ideas, what are you doing writing a book? That's also sharing your ideas. Well, I think there's this inclination to like want to save it. Like, I don't want to give anything away. I'm going to like reveal this all at once. I, I still have that. Like I kind of, you know, if I've got something cooking, I don't even want to tell anybody about it. And I get that, but I just, to me, like being online, like Twitter to me is like a laboratory. Like if I hadn't done that tweet thread, the editor at LitHub wouldn't have emailed me and asked me to write an essay. If I hadn't tweeted my rage at Glennon Doyle, the editor at the New York Times wouldn't have emailed me and said, do you want to write an op-ed about this? So I see Twitter as like a laboratory where I'm trying out different ideas and seeing what sticks because it's an easy way to tell, is this resonating with an audience? Do people think this is interesting? Do I have more to say on this? Right. Wait, what's your rage at Glennon Doyle? Oh, I read that profile it. like earlier this year. I read that profile of her in the New Yorker by Ariel Levy. And it just like triggered, like, it just triggered this like rage that like we've turned to Glennon Doyle as some kind of like spiritual advisor, like she's our minister when she's just an influencer and how she uses her, her flaws and her vulnerability, like her struggle with her eating disorder as a beautiful, thin white woman to be relatable. It's everything I read about in self care. Right. And then I ended up writing this piece for the New York Times about instavangelists 
Um, as, as we've become more secular as a society, we've replaced our religious clergy with influencers like Glennon Doyle, who is totally like, um, a pastor. And she almost entered the church to become one, but instead she became an influencer. But this is what you're supposed to do. If somebody comes to you and says, how can I build my brand to sell my book? Going the Glennon Doyle route would not be the worst idea. Right. And I have mixed feelings. See, I, 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 I do have mixed feelings about this because I have mixed feelings about social media and what it's doing to us because there are negative sides. And sometimes I think, am I telling people they have to be on Twitter? Like, am I an alcoholic being like, Megan, I think you should really drink more. I think that would really help you, you know, cause I'm addicted. I'm addicted. And then I'm pushing this substance on other people, but I, I want to help people break in and I want to help people get their stories out there. And if they're reluctant to step into their arena, I can't really do that for them. Right. I mean, so what, let's just like, Go through this. What would you say to somebody? I mean, I'm, I'm teaching my, I'm about to wrap up my first Zoom workshop and we're going to be talking, um, on Monday about this very thing. Like what if somebody wants to, they've got, say they've got a manuscript and they need to build some kind of platform. What are the steps? What's the first thing they should do? Well, I would say the era of the personal essay is over. So writing a personnel essay about the worst thing that's ever happened to you, there are fewer and fewer places that will even publish Wait, this. Wait, really, really? When did it, when did it end? With the last it, essay I published, that was the end. No. Yeah, <laughs> it ended with Megan. Yes, it did it's because I, I wrote it. I wrote an essay saying I'm not writing any more, uh, any more essays. Okay. But wait, let's, so there was a time when you were supposed to write something about the worst thing that ever happened to you. I mean, I have to say as recently as, I mean, even my last book, publishing a book meant you had to write a whole bunch of pieces. Like, yeah, like you've got to get, write an op-ed, you know, you've, you've got to get something in the New York Times if you can, you've got to, you know, you've got to hit these, these markers, but that's over. That's still true. But I would say the personal essay peaked in the 2010s, like with XO Jane, it happened to me. Um, and <laughs> Slate, Salon were publishing personal right. essays. So I had a personal essay go viral in BuzzFeed in 2014 about my ex-boyfriend. And that's what helped me sell my memoir. So okay. it went viral. My agent sold my memoir. This happened for a lot of people. If you got the right viral essay, you could sell a book. Well, in Modern Love, this is why everybody wants to write Modern Loves. I mean, I think that's still the exception. Though, If you can get, it's very hard to get Modern Love. I mean, they've got that's the thousands golden of submissions, right? That's but the golden I, ticket. But I have to say, as I always tell my students, I have seen so many Modern Loves that were great, turned into really mediocre memoirs. Most of them should just stay essays. We don't need to make 100%. a book. We don't need to make a book out of everything. But at least getting in modern love gets an agent to email you and ask, are you working on a book? Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. So the uh, the era of the personal essay is over. So if somebody wants to build their brand, what should they do? What's the they first step? They have to write an op-ed. Oh, an op-ed. Okay. Yes. Right. Okay. So instead of writing about the sad thing that happened to you, you need to write an argument driven piece. And so I always say like, what makes you mad? And this, I just taught a class recently and this woman took a class with me and she's writing about infant lost, infant loss. She lost a stillborn baby. And I challenged her in the class. I said like, what makes this different from other grief memoirs? There's a lot of grief memoirs out there. And she said like, nobody wants to talk about dead babies. And I said, that's the essay. Like it made her mad. So like, I'm looking for that anger instead of despair. It's like anger. And she pitched Huffington Post and she got an essay published 
about how uncomfortable we are with talking about infant loss. But it was like, it was bigger than just what had happened to her. It was also saying something about the culture. That's what gets people talking. You have to write something that someone could argue with. See, that's so funny because this has always been my approach to essay writing, no matter what. Like, it's not about, it's, you're using your experience as a lens through which to look at something bigger in the world. That's like a, that, but that to me is part of creative writing. Like that, the personal essay to me, the reason it's an essay and not a journal entry is because it has transcended the merely personal, but maybe that's just me. Um, it's funny, that, yeah. but, but a lot of memoirists, I know they're very uncomfortable with having an opinion in public. Well, and I don't blame them now. I mean, okay. So that gets to another thing that comes up a lot in my classes. People say, well, there's all sorts of things I want to say, but I don't want to be canceled right out of the gate. And they say to me, you know, you sit around and tell us always to take risks and don't obsess about, you know, getting piled on, on Twitter. But the fact is that, you have a reputation like one one misstep isn't going to kill you but if my if my debut on twitter is met with a dog pile i'm done before i start it what do you say to that right i mean it has to be it has to be something that they really believe in and that they would stand by and i wouldn't tell anyone to publish something that's provocative just to be provocative no of attention. course not but like a lot of what they stand by they feel that they can't say it's really but hard. then why do they want to write a book right like it's like if 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 you want to write a book about something you have to be willing to put those ideas out in public in various forms before the book comes out right right well and i always i also say you know if you're if you're so worried about what someone is going to think of this before you even write it, it's it's a better problem to have to have written the book and then be worried about what people are going to think than to not be able to start at all. Like, it's a better problem to have to have finished the thing and then be dealing with the repercussions. Yeah. And it's also true, too. Like, <laughs> it's just so interesting because, like, I came on your show and I just written this, like, viral essay about the end of The Girl Boss. And it was in the top 10 most performing stories of Medium.com for the whole year. Everyone read this piece. Um, people were telling me they were at like parties in California and some stranger brought up the piece. Like it, it traveled the country. And then my editor asked me to write a follow-up. And I know I was texting you through this whole process, but it took many months. And long story short, the publication folded before they could run my follow-up. <laughs> I was anxious about getting canceled for the follow-up, for having a more nuanced take. Finally, Airmail published. I wrote a 3,500-word follow-up. Airmail finally published it in the form of 1,500 words. So they cut 2,000 words off of it. And it was a follow-up that said, you know, that, that, that shaming these female founders, it was a kind of participatory, participatory sport during the pandemic that we, those of us, you know, with a work from home lifestyle could kind of watch these women destroyed and participate in the comment section. And meanwhile, like they were beholden to a lot of different shareholders, not just angry people in the comment section. And I had some sympathy for them. So I kind of changed my mind and I tried to have a nuanced take. Mm -hmm. No one read this piece. <laughs> Well, because it was behind a paywall and airmail for starters. Partly because it was behind a paywall, but like it just wasn't shared and talked about in the same way. Right. And, but meanwhile, I had months of anxiety leading up to it. What was I doing? Should I pull the piece? Should I even write this? Hmm. So you never know, right? Like you never know what's going to make a splash. My Instavangelist piece in the New York Times, it made a splash with religious people. It was like talked about in sermons all over the country about this, this explains secular Americans. Like, what are they up to? Lee Stein will tell us about secular Americans, but secular Americans didn't glom onto the piece. So you just never know. Yeah. Well, okay. So you tell them to write an op-ed, then what? 
I tell them to write an op-ed. I tell them the thing that comes so naturally to me is making friends on the internet. I, this comes very naturally to we me. We are so different. I, this is just like, I, this is like a really good, um, case study in generational divide because I feel like anybody I meet on the internet, if I like them, like I'm going to try to meet them in person. Like you and I went on a dog walk and to me, in real life, not virtually, obviously, but uh, to me, that was like a natural next step That's in, in our too. friendship. But you, maybe that, maybe then, maybe you were just like, "Ooh, that was a little, that was a little, uh, you know, boundary pushing of her." <laughs> no, no, no. That's totally natural. Like you start by talking to people online, then you take it to the DM where you're DMing someone, and then if you're in the same city, you meet. I was just in Fargo, North Dakota, and I met someone in real life who was just my internet friend. So yeah. that's the end goal for me too, is to, is to meet in real life. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Okay. So, all right. So you tell them to, uh, they've got sorry. to be on social media. They've okay. got to engage naturally. I, you can't just people, it's just so awkward to watch people just kind of broadcasting and promoting their own stuff all the time. That's not engaging. That's There's no wonder that that isn't getting any attention. Yeah. Why doesn't somebody start, uh, I mean, there really should be classes actually in MFA programs about how to handle yourself on social media media because people, you're right, people don't know how to do it and they, they just promote their stuff, but there's a real art to it and you've, and you've got to finesse it. So what are some tips there? You know, when I say engage, it's like the way you would in real life. Like if someone, so, so you can, first of all, you can find comps in the same way that you would find comps for your book. You can find comps for writers that are using social media the way you would like to. You can say, wow, she has 12,000 followers. How does she have 12,000 followers? What does she tweet? Who did, who are her friends? You can tell who's friends with who. And I really encourage writers to be on Twitter because that's where the media people are. That's where the literary agents are and the book editors and the magazine editors. They're all on Twitter because they're all verbal people like we are. Right. And so you can get discovered. Talk about being plucked up and discovered. I think the place to get discovered is through Twitter. And so if you build up a following and then you have your op-ed published, and then you tweet it and then your fans and your friends and a couple editors or agents see it, this can lead to a career. And when you say career, what does that mean? Okay, because you have a book and then you get also people don't realize you get an advance. Let's just use round numbers here. So you get a $100,000 advance. Um, your agent's going to get what 15% of that, maybe 20. You're going to pay tax on, you know, at least 30% of it. And so you're walking away with basically half at the end of the day. If you got, if you, if your advance is a hundred thousand dollars, you've netted about $57,000. Divided in three or four payments over that's two right. years. That's right. Right. So it could be, depending on how long it takes to write your book, that's like minimum wage potentially. Yeah. So I hardly know anyone that makes a living just writing books. I don't make a living just writing books. I, I kind of think like I run two businesses. Like I run one, I'm self-employed and one of my businesses is being a writer and I get paid for writing books, for writing articles. And then my other business is as a book coach and I get paid to work on other people's books. And that's the steady income that allows me to have the non-steady job of writing books, which is what I love to do. So what do you think the future of books is? Are, will there be books like in 20 years? There, there will be books. I mean, I'm, I've always been 
I'm not a snob about MFA programs, but I think I am kind of a snob about traditional publishing. Like I'm still kind of loyal to traditional publishing. I still value the prestige of yeah. traditional publishing. It's interesting to see the, the other ways writers are earning income, like from Patreon and from Substack. But I haven't yet made that like mental shift to thinking of like self-published books in the same way because I kind of look down on self-published books. A lot of them are genre fiction, which I don't read anyway, so I'm not in, in that world. But I have a friend who is one of my best friends. She's an amazing poet. Her little sister published a gay erotic novel on Amazon and made so much money she bought a new house. Wow. Yeah, you know, if you had asked me five years ago about self-publishing, I would have turned my nose up. But I think things are really, really changing, especially depending on the kind of book you want to do. And the fact is, it's been cool if if you're a musician to put out your own record, start your own label. Filmmakers have been doing it. It's just odd that this one um, this one area of the culture has been kind of closed to that model. And the other thing too is like, even if you're traditionally published... The expectations about how much marketing and promotion you have to do as the author is just going up and up and up. And if you have to do that anyway for self-published books, at some point you make some calculation where you're like, why am I doing this? Could I make more money? But you have to have an audience and a platform. Again, if you're going to make money as a self-published author, you have to have an audience and a platform. And maybe you could speak to, because you've published books you've published books over time. How have you seen the machine work differently in terms of the support the publisher gives you? Well, the, I, I have had very good support. The last book, the problem with everything, um, I, I have no complaints. They did an excellent job. I mean, they, they, I got to go on a little book tour. There was a lot of publicity. I mean, it's a book that lent itself to publicity. It was a little polarizing. So there was that watching people I know get published. I mean, I have so many author friends. There's probably five of them have books come out every week. <laughs> um, it's it's maddening. I mean, there's so little support. Editors are stretched thin. Everybody's stretched thin. It's not even anybody's fault at the house. It's not like they're purposely ignoring you. It's just a triage situation. Well, so, Penguin Random House publishes 15,000 new titles a year. Yeah. So. I think the self-publishing thing is really interesting, but it depends on the kind of book. It really does. Um, it's, it's, it's a project by project thing. But, you know, the fact is that people, I mean, you could do an original audio book now. A lot of people are just skipping the printed version altogether or the, even the ebook and going to an audio version or. Something like that. Yeah, there's something like sad to me about like how pay to play it is. Like you pay for the MFA and let's say you're one of the lucky ones and you get a book deal and then you pay for the marketing consultant and the publicist. And at the same time, like writing has been so devalued now because of the internet. This is the downside of the internet. The people just expect content for free. They don't want to pay for con content, which is our art. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, because my my first book, so I finished the MFA in like '96. My my misspent youth collection of essays came out in not till 2001. Actually, I was kicking around as a magazine writer for all that time, but also being paid a lot of money. Like I got sent to New Zealand for a month to write like a 2,000 word story. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Not it was Condé Nast. 
sports for women now defunct uh sports women's sports magazine yeah so i was i definitely i feel like i was at the the last kind of the last hurrah period but no my point was my first book was this, was a small press actually this essay collection and then the second book was a novel that just i got incredibly lucky it went into an auction kind of situation and it i made a lot of money and i was able to get out of debt and pay off my loans and it certainly did not earn out its advance it was never going to and i had a huge book tour like a 12 city book tour on the hardcover 15 city on the paperback showing up to things where nobody was i mean it's like it was incredible they would you would be in an expensive hotel and then you would go show up at the bookstore for your event and there would be one person there i mean i yeah, i've done those too yeah I, I mean i remember one time i was in minneapolis um this was like 2003 or something and uh, David Sedaris had an event at, in the same city at the same night, like at the university. It was his big, big, he was like at the absolute peak of his fame. And anybody who cared about books at all in Minneapolis was at his thing. So I had one girl come, this like 20 year old young woman, this very young woman drove like a hundred miles from her family farm to come see me read from my novel at at the bookstore. And it was so, it was just the two of us. So I just took her to see David Sedaris because there was no, <laughs> nothing else to do. What are you going to do in that situation? That's so sweet. So that's what we did. But um, yeah, my, my point is those days are so, so long ago. And with each subsequent book, the cities have been fewer. The hotels have been cheaper. <laughs> And uh, it's just, and I still feel incredibly, incredibly lucky to have been able to to, ha- to be treated the way I've been treated by publishers. I mean, insanely lucky. Um, but it gets harder every time. And I don't know what's going to be next, you know? Yeah, they, they want to do more and more things online, which requires the author to have an online platform, to have a community of people online that they can promote right. things to rather than invest in sending someone on a tour, I went on a twelve-city tour for my first novel from a dinky little press too. Wow, twelve. Wow, yeah. I mean, the other thing too. I mean, I wonder what you would say to this because I think about this all the time. I mean, I'll get an idea for an essay or something like something I would write, and then I think, okay, I could write this piece, and it would be a personal essay, and you know, it would be have kind of vulnerable in points, you know, whatever. It would be like a kind of classic me kind of 6,000 word piece. I could publish that somewhere, but what would be the point? I could publish that and like some people would be excited about it. A lot of people would hate it. Um, I would get paid a couple hundred dollars and I would have exposed myself in a way I would have opened myself up to like a whole bunch of just all kinds of things, good things, bad things, things in between. And what is the end game? I mean, it makes me really sad to have that series of thoughts because what was ever the end game? Like in the 90s, Michael, I would have written something that I felt urgent about and I would have sent it to the New Yorker. And if I was incredibly lucky, they would have taken it and it would have been meticulously edited and it would have been fact-checked and it would be put out and it would be in the New Yorker. And because it was in the New Yorker, it would have been you know, met with respect, regardless of whether people liked it or not. And okay, so that model's gone. 
I mean, I guess I could send it to the New Yorker, but even, even if I did, let's put it this way, even if I did send it to the New Yorker and they published it, it would not, it would just be, it would blow away in the wind the next day because right, there's nobody, such a short shelf life for pieces. Right. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to like process why, why I'm having these feelings and if they're rational or maybe I'm being kind of overly negative. No, but it's sad too, because it's like a form that you're really good at. Like there's a certain form that like you really knock it out of the park when given that form. Yeah. And I want to do it. I would do it for, for a book, like with the unspeakable, I wrote all those essays specifically to be in the book in the company of one another. They were never published other places beforehand. They got excerpted at magazines after the fact, but none of those pieces would have been pitchable. They're too weird. I would never have taken like the piece about my mother and put it out into the world, like in a magazine, because then it's just being met out of context. Like it's, I, I really felt I wanted to control the pieces. So I can see writing another book of essays. I'm sure I will, but to put something out in the world, like a, I don't know who would publish it. And B, like I could put it on Medium, I guess, or something. But again, why? <laughs> you know? Yeah, but also I think like it's 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 hard for me to imagine someone publishing a book of essays that craft that's crafted in that way without them also publishing other stuff. Like I don't think someone who's brand new could do what you did. You oh, were yeah, able no. to do that because of everything you'd done before. Right. Yeah. No, I'm talking about me now, but I'm trying to suss out why it is that I feel so uninspired to write a piece, to write an essay and just publish it. Like I've got a lot of ideas kicking around, but it's not like I'm sitting here thinking like, Oh, I can't wait to get this down so I can send it out into the world. It feels like no good could come of it. Yeah, no, I just feel like I, like, my reaction is so cynical and jaded. It's like, well, why do I, you know, I think about my, my Lit Hub piece coming out, which will be out by the time this, this episode airs. Like, that's going to come out. And what's going to happen is maybe I'll get some more Twitter followers and I'll get some more newsletter subscribers. And then when I have something to promote, I'll have more people to promote it to. That's, <sighs> that's what I think. Okay. But where's the money part of this? The money piece of this is not like you'll, you can attract more clients. Yeah, yeah, coaching. that people will sign up for my classes and that I'll build my platform so that when I sell my next novel, um, I'll have a bigger platform. Wow. Doesn't that sound terrible? It's just, but no, I think you're realistic. Like, where's the joy though? Where's the joy? Do you take joy in writing? Yeah. So the joy for me is like in writing fiction and poetry and saying what I really think, wearing a disguise cloak. Oh, okay. 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 And you still feel that you can publish fiction and, and poetry. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's all about the books for me. It's like, what do I need to do in order to continue publishing books? Cause I really enjoy publishing books and I really enjoy like sitting with something for a long period of time. I don't write essays very frequently. I write like a few a year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm not usually burning with ideas. Right. Okay. But you, you're, you aren't even crossing that threshold. You have the idea, but you're saying to yourself, what's the point of even putting this down and spending hours working? Oh, on this? months. I mean, often months. I, I have stuff in my computer that I wrote in the, over the last several years that I don't know what to do with. I honestly like, I don't know what to do with it because. Do you have an idea for another nonfiction book? 
Um, I've got a whole bunch of ideas. I mean, I'm not going to see again. My, I I'm, I would never say them out loud because I feel like that's my instinct is like, oh, someone's going to steal it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I look, I love essays. That's my form. I'm committed to them. I'm sure I will do another book of essays, but I just don't. It's there. The, you know, I don't see publishing a standalone piece. I think that would feel weird. It used to feel exciting and like I was sharing something with the world, but now it just feels like I'm um, kind of like trolling the world. Like I'm daring people to, you know, respond or something. It's just, it doesn't feel like a healthy exchange. Yeah. And it feels like, it even feels to me like the attention economy is even so skewed. It's just like every other economy where it's like, you know, we all talk about cat person or we all talk about kidney gate. And then there's all the stuff that we don't even notice. It's like right. either you make a big splash or you're forgotten. There's no middle ground. Oh, that's so interesting. That's yeah, that's true. That's true. Wow. Well, is there anything we haven't covered? This has been really inspiring. <laughs> No, I would just say you asked me like if I'm, you know, what I think about the publishing industry. And I think for me, it's like, I want to know more and learn. The more I learn, the more I think like I can help, like I can crack the code. So I keep trying to learn more about how the industry works because I keep thinking the more I learn, the more I can help people break in or help people problem solve, you know, help people understand why didn't their book proposal sell? You know, why didn't this hit? Yeah. So I I like learning more rather than living in ignorance. When my novel, when my my agent takes my my books, (laughs) when my agent submits my books, like I ask to see all the rejection letters. I want to know everything everyone said. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, you, I have to say you're very good at what you do and you are providing a service that is not available in MFA programs. That's for sure. And Hugo agrees, as you can hear in the background. You know what? I, I will leave you with this. When speaking of multi-level marketing schemes, in 2005, after I had published a couple of books and like been in the New Yorker and been like quote unquote successful, I was strapped for cash and I got a job as a copywriter for Herbalife. <gasps> at Herbalife, the ultimate multi-level marketing place. Oh my scheme. god! And I actually went into the office. A friend of mine was working there, also writing writing copy. And I drove to the offices in Century City. This was in Los Angeles, and I drove there every day. And I sat at my cubicle, and I wrote catalog copy. Um, the actual labels on the vitamins, like they had to have some kind of content, you know, um, and. Uh, so I, I felt like I participated in multi-level marketing. This is a huge confession. Yeah. But also I think it's important to talk about because, you know, even if you have success, you still end up in situations where you have to take jobs like that. I mean, I had to, I had to pay my bills and it can happen at any time. I mean, I think people would be shocked also, like there are people who've been very well published out there who are doing all kinds of jobs that you might be surprised that they're doing. Nothing makes me more curious than seeing a writer online and not knowing how they actually make a living. You know, I'm so curious all the time, like, but how do they actually make a living? Because some people are, you know, they're, you can tell they're a teacher or they talk about what their day job is or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the people who don't talk about what they do to earn money, I'm just, it makes me so curious. Well, I want to know what they do for health insurance too. Also a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I buy my own health insurance. I've, pay out of my pocket like $700 a month. 
it's expensive. It's, it's brutal. It's brutal. Anyway, well, congratulations on the new piece. I hope it is a huge splash. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. Are you ready for the backlash? I don't ready. think there will be. You know what? No, no MFA program is ever going to let you in now. <laughs> no. You screwed yourself. I know. Yeah. All right. I think you'll survive. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Megan. That was my interview with Lee Stein. She is the author of five books, including the novel Self Care, which she talked about on the August 2nd, 2020 edition of this podcast, and the recent poetry collection, What to Miss When. Her article about her experience going into debt while founding a literary organization designed to economically empower writers is out this week in LitHub. Again, a video version of this interview is available on the podcast YouTube channel, The Unspeakable Channel. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. As always, if you want to support the show, I would love you to join our patron community at patreon.com slash The Unspeakable. There are lots of perks there, including discounts on merchandise, early access to the podcast, and for mid-tier patrons or higher, the chance to attend bi-weekly hangouts where we discuss specific episodes of the podcast. Unrelated to the podcast, but somewhat related to the conversation you just heard, I will say again that my next personal essay and memoir writing workshop on Zoom will start up next year on January 10th. It will be eight consecutive Mondays starting on January 10th and running through February 28th and take place from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. The application is December 20th. And for more information, you can go to daummasterclass.com. Space is limited, but if you're interested, don't hesitate to apply. Meanwhile, I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest, maybe even dangerously nuanced. Thanks for listening. See you next time.